All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for gathering us together to fellowship in this way that is so unique to our experience here on earth. What a way to start a beautiful morning like this, to dine on the very bread of life. How encouraging it is, Father. We're so grateful to you for your grace, your mercy, and your love. These are the things that are expressed on a morning like this, and may we extend these same attributes to each other as we study together. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us for their healing. We pray for those that are still lost, of course, before it's too late. Most of all, though, we are most grateful and thankful for your Son's work, our Lord and Savior, on the cross to make a morning like this something to rejoice in, something to even be able to understand. Um, I think it's easy, Father, to take it for granted. Uh, we just ask for the Spirit's guidance so that we don't do that very thing to our own detriment. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. And uh, Pat, how are you doing, by the way? Okay. All right. So keep Pat. Pat's been going through some stuff as well. And I, that's what I mean. I don't ever want to exclude anyone, so I apologize. Um, but it's good to see you here. Um, with that said, um, the Lord is our confidence. Part 39, I'm kind of surprised, but that's not the first time that we're, we've gone this long. Not necessarily, but at the beginning of the the series, I thought, I honestly thought it was going to be maybe seven to ten messages, and here we are almost at 40. Just the Spirit has a lot to say on this thing, and it's been very encouraging, I think. Um, real wonderful journey. So, anyways, I was talking with my wife Tammy this past week about this week's blog, which is titled The Three Pillars of Satan's Unholy Economy. Hopefully, you read that. The Three Pillars of Satan's Unholy Economy, and she sent me a passage that captured our collective thoughts on it. And I shared the passage with a few of you already, but it really warrants a broader audience. And so hopefully you appreciate it. Um, and just appreciate also in a general sense, what often happens when you have discussions over the word of God. There's so many times where I'll be talking to anyone really about the word of God, something that was said from the pulpit or something that was said in a blog or just something that I've read in the Bible and just talking with someone. There's aha moments. You're just, just talking about it. Even They might not even be saying anything. They might not even be saying a thing. But just by you verbalizing your own thoughts, things occur. The Spirit starts giving you more and more pearls. So just remember that, that a lot of times fellowship is just about sharing. And in that moment, he gives you even more. It's an amazing reality. So whenever you get the chance, uh, don't spend your time talking about garbage with other people. If you've got the chance, don't tell dirty jokes. Talk about the Word of God, honestly, and you will benefit uh, from it. So anyways, I shared the passage, but I really want to share um, it with all of you, and as we do so, recall that the blog was about the trappings of Satan's economy. Go to Proverbs 4.25. Proverbs 4.25. Really is a, a wonderful thing to do. I do it sometimes as a strategy in my own life because my flesh is pretty strong, surprise. And whenever I call certain people, it's, there's, a, there's a habit there to speak about certain things, and it may be disjoint from the Word of God. And so I stop myself and say, before you pick up that phone, make it a point. I'll make a point of talking about the Word of God with this person. Change the tact, in other words. You know what I'm saying? You know, there's certain people in your life where you communicate, and it's always the same thread. And that thread may not be completely to the glory of God. It may be a little bit off color. It may be a little bit whatever, but it's 
very often fleshly. And a strategy that I use in my own life to protect myself and others is before I pick up the phone, I say, what can we talk about that's actually godly? What is going to be edifying for both of us? And what's going to bring glory to God? That's a wonderful habit to get into. Because what else is there to talk about, folks? Honest to goodness. What are you going to talk about? It's a fair question. Uh, in, in case in point, look at Proverbs 4.25. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. You see it? Keep your eyes front and center. Keep your eyes on the prize. Again, let your eyes look, this is verse 25, let your eyes look directly forward, your gaze be straight before you, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the left or to the right. Turn your foot away from evil. And the blog basically just talked about three pillars of evil. Idolatry, love of money, and sexual immorality. Those seem to be, it's not all inclusive, but they seem to be the three pillars, the three things that really stand out uh, in America, especially today. Those are the big traps. Um, and they're the things that sort of get our eyes off of the prize. Uh, as Paul wrote, go to Philippians 3.14. Philippians 3.14. Philippians 3.14. So many distractions in this world. Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I was just thinking as I was reading that, of all the, and I speak loosely here, but of the super successful, and you can, you can call success, make it a little bit less strict, but of all the super successful people that I've ever met, they're almost maniacal in their focus. They're almost maniacal, meaning they're so determined and there's so much tenacity towards a goal. Now, take that pattern and apply it to the spiritual life. That should be us. Our eyes should be set on the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You want true success in the spiritual life, you have to be all in. You have to focus all your attention and do not be distracted. Do not let your eyes go left or right, as we just noted. And that's what Paul is writing about here. I press on. I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall to the right and to the left. I'm going to trip up, but I'm going to get back up. But ultimately, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything uh, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So, right out of the gate, the Spirit wants us all to be encouraged. So shall we be encouraged this morning? I hope so. Let's leave the distractions and the trappings of the world system behind us, shall we? Let's be all in this morning if only for an hour or so before our sinful habits suck us right back into the patchy thing we call our lives. Can't you do that thing? I know what's going to happen. It happens to me. As soon as you get outside, brrr, your phone explodes. Oh, look at that. I got to do this. I set my reminder to go do this, and I got to do that, and so-and-so's got a, a this, and this is a birthday party, and this is a blah, 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 blah. And you get sucked right back in. Can't you give God undivided attention? Can't you show up and, 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 and keep your eyes on the prize for an hour? Can you be present? God's present, amen? Can you be present? That's where the, quote, magic happens, right? When you're present. 
Go to Acts 28, verse 23. We're going to read a story about when Paul was going through a little persecution and his defense includes what the Spirit's been saying this morning. And they don't like it much. And neither does your flesh, by the way. Acts 28, 23. Twenty-eight, verse twenty-three. When they, Jewish leaders, had appointed a day for him, Paul was under a sort of house arrest at the time. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now that's just a little side uh, note that there's one gospel. That Paul was using Old Testament uh, doctrines to prove Jesus was who he said he was. That the good news is about, it's never changed. Does that make sense? People that say there's more than one gospel or twist the gospel, are, are, uh, need a, I don't know what to say. Uh, they just got it wrong. So beware. If anyone ever tells you there's more than one gospel, there's like the gospel of old for the Jews, and then there's a, you know, the so-called gospel of grace or whatever for, for the New Testament is, is lost. Doesn't understand the gospel, and that means they're in bondage. Look at this, verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Paul had something to say about this as a result of their obstinance. Verse 25, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. Here's what we might focus on uh, this morning. Verse 27, and we might begin to relate to this in a practical sense, experientially. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, excuse me, and turn, and I would heal them. Paul describes the estate of spiritual deafness and blindness. And remember, it is the Lord God who grants hearing and sight. This is, this is going to get a little theological this morning before we move on. But Paul, nonetheless, is describing a, a spiritual, the spiritual estate of deafness and blindness. So I want you to remember that it's God who grants hearing and sight. Just remember that as we keep going. God grants hearing and sight. Coupled with the fact that God gives grace to the humble, but is opposed to the arrogant, what we can conclude is very simple. That God had blocked these Jews from his blessings. God blocked these Jews from his blessings. And go ahead and think about your own blessings right now. And think about all the ones that he hasn't blocked from you. Just think about that for a moment. Look at all the blessings that he hasn't blocked from you. And then imagine being completely blind and deaf. For starters, the simple fact that you can understand what the Spirit's communicating spiritually from this pulpit. Take that for starters. They couldn't. They were deaf and blind. Whenever he imparts blessings from his divine goodness, he is making the best possible move for his subjects. And he's also making the best possible moves for those whose hearts he hardens. You might say, wait a minute, how does that work? You mean when he blocks certain blessings? That's the best move? Yes. Yes. 
Believe it or not, yes. So I think this last statement in a practical sense, sense is difficult for us to grasp. It really is, because that's not what even modern contemporary Christianity teaches. It's just keep throwing you know, the blessings at people, and eventually they stick. Just keep showing people the same kind of openness and, quote, what they call tolerance and love. Just throw that and pile it on them, and eventually they'll turn around. I don't think the Bible talks about that. Not to that degree. So this last statement, that he might harden the hearts of individuals. It's difficult for people to grasp. We say, you know, that actually seems a little harsh in my book. That our Creator would deny us blessings. I thought He loved us. We say things like that. But that's the whole point, my friends. Love protects people from crashing and burning and ending up in hell. Love doesn't encourage evil. Love doesn't encourage evil. Rather, it is opposed to it. And some of you need to ingrain that in your souls right now. Love doesn't encourage evil. It is opposed to it. This means that God will use whatever means necessary to get you to realize that life without Him is futile and filled with misery. Give that some thought this weekend. Life without Him is filled with futility and misery. All right, back to our primary point. Whenever God blocks hearing in sight, it's an expression of His divine goodness. You might say, how can that be? It is, because God is intrinsically good. He's always good. So anything He does is what? Good. So if He's blocking someone's hearing in sight, it's an expression of His character. And His character is always good. He is doing the best possible thing for those whose hearts he hardens. Let me give you a friendly reminder up here on the board, Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Hmm. Do not give the dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We may not always know what God will do after this kind of a decision is made. I've made it. Have you ever made it? You try to evangelize someone. You try to give them the, the God's honest truth about something as fundamental as, I don't know, repentance, and they won't hear it. What do you do? At some point, you dust your feet and move on. You say, well, I've got to leave this one up to God. Because obviously they have a hardened heart. We may not always know what God will do after this decision is made, but we must have faith that it is for the best. So here's an analogy just to help drive it home. Suppose you're a parent of a teenager. So go ahead and sigh. Right, Todd did. Suppose you're a parent of a teenager. You and your spouse like to take vacations and day trips and visit museums and parks, etc. Good, healthy family stuff. But your kid lately has been a total pill. What do you do? Do you ignore their utter disobedience and continue on as planned? Or do you say, well... We can't bless you with all these good things. In fact, we have to ground you so that you can grow up. Fast forward 15 years. What does your child look like if you took plan A versus plan B? Plan A, you just, you know, we're just going to continue as usual. Plan B, this is getting bad. I have to ground you. I have to remove some of these blessings so that you learn and grow. What does your child look like? Answers. Plan A. If you fail your child by refusing to address the issue, you get a maladjusted, miserable person who's so entrenched in evil and that system of thinking that they have to 
seek counseling just to attempt to unravel it as an adult. Case B, if you block blessings, sending a strong message against their arrogance, they turn out well-adjusted and content, maybe even able to connect the dots back to the faith. It's our, our greatest responsibility as a parent is to raise a child in the faith. Above everything, raise a child in the faith. Say, oh, no, I need to love them. No, God loves them way more than you ever will. You have a job. Do you want them to know your love in a selfish sense, or do you want them to know God's love? Which one's greater, by the way? God's love. You will sacrifice yourself. Even if they say, I hate you, I hate you. That's a teenager, right? I hate you. Fine, as long as you love God. I'm doing a job. You don't like me right now? That's cool. Eventually, you'll figure it out, especially when you have your own kids. You'll figure it out. Parenting, being a good parent's really hard, especially when you're in the faith. Your job as a parent is to raise your children in the faith. What the hell good is it to have a child who loves you who rots in hell? Now, honest to goodness, what did you accomplish? What service did you provide? What godliness did you produce in that home where your son or daughter ends up in the lake of fire, but God knows they loved you? They never said they hated me. How'd that end up? Okay, let me go back. God is a perfect father. So, which path do you think he chooses to take? Of those two. Furthermore, with God, we have to take this one step further, beyond any analogy we can drum up as parents or children. With God, since he sees the heart and is omnipotent, he is able to literally harden a person's heart. The result, of course, is guaranteed misery. Guaranteed misery as that person continues to distance themselves from him. And that is, by the way, the meat of the lesson, so don't miss it. That's what he does. He says, okay, I'll go ahead and harden your heart, and we'll see how this ends. God essentially says, so, you want to be arrogant against me? The only one who is able to bless you? Okay, have it your way, and let's see how this turns out, shall we? In other words, God actively blocks an arrogant person's ability to hear and see. Let me share an email I received from a truly humble member of this congregation who apparently has very good hearing and eyesight when it comes to the Word of God. This is how it begins. Life is so beautiful. God is so awesome. I hung on every word spoken from Wednesday night's message. That's called good hearing. I am seeing so clearly, that's called good sight. It's helping to have confidence in our Lord as never before. His promises, I have been making steps by faith in his word and promises. I have less and less anxiety. Oh, Pastor Ed, it's true. The depths of his riches are unfathomable. The good book says, that's all we really need to know. Romans 1, 16 to 17. Many thanks for your continued faithfulness. Enjoy the rest of your day. Is that not awesome? Yeah. That's what good hearing and good sight does for a humble person. They're completely set free. And the end result, when you're free from the bondage, you're rejoicing over life itself. The very opening statement is, life is so beautiful. God is so awesome. Apparently, due to this person's humility, the good Lord has removed any blockages. As we've learned in the past, the eyes and ears of the soul are the gateways to the mind, to true knowledge of God. 
And no one gets to know God unless they are allowed to. We need to dwell on that. And that, that may come as a shocker to most so-called Christians nowadays. That no one gets to know God unless they are allowed to. What's the, when, when, when Jesus said, knock and the door shall be opened, the implication is a certain respect for the home of the one whose door you are knocking on. Does that make sense? He said, knock and the door will be opened, right? Do you go up to the front door of Jesus Christ and kick the door down and ransack the place and say, I want all the goodies and then, then, then blast out of there and treat them like uh, some kind of a what? Rebound guy, some kind of a just what? Some pathetic loser that sits on a couch who you can overrun whenever you feel like it? Does that sound like the word of God? I don't think so. You have to knock with a certain respect. If you come to my door and you kick my door down, even if I love you and know you, we're going to have an issue. You kick your door down and say, I want some yodels. <laughs> Heard you got some yodels, right? And you just go in my pantry and grab the yodels and take off. I'm going to be like, what the hell was that all about? Grace! And you run out the door screaming, Grace! I'm going to say, no, 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 that's thievery. I think, you, I think you're grace wrong. I'll give you yodels if you knock respectfully. If you respect my home. That's a shocker to most Christians. You can't just barge in uninvited. That's not how God works. So here's the bad news for most so-called Christians nowadays up here on the board. God doesn't cater to entitled brats. God doesn't cater to entitled brats. This means that you can't expect to receive God's blessings when you're being arrogant. You must knock in humility. The blessings may be found inside. If you do approach the throne of grace in humility, here is the foremost blessing of all as a believer, after salvation, of course. Go to Luke 24:45. Luke 24:45. If you do knock in humility and with respect to the one who is able to grant blessings, here's the one. Here's the foremost one for believers. This is incredible. Luke 24, verse 45. When you're humble, what? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How about that? How about there are billions of people out there right now that could take the Bible sitting in front of you, read it, and their minds are closed. But... For you, it's been granted that your mind is open to understand Scripture. How about that? Just stop for a moment and ponder this one simple fact. God, by grace, opens your eyes to see what He sees. What? You mean you're going to share some of your viewpoint with me? You're going to let me see the truth of the matter? What, what doesn't make any sense whatsoever to my flesh is going to make perfect sense when I see it through your eyes? By grace, he opens your eyes to see what he sees. That's what I, that old phrase I used to use. Remember, seeing it all is truth. That's all, we all, that's all we want to know, right? At this stage of my life, that may be the most common prayer of all. I just want to know, what is the truth? I don't even, at this point, the, the, the blessings that come from knowing the truth, you know, the truth shall set you free, etc., is secondary. I just want to know the truth because I'm sick and tired of being lied to. I'm sick and tired of being 
insecure, anxious about lies because I have been told lies my whole life. And some of them are still deeply ingrained. I just want to know the truth. That's it. I just want to know the truth. Go to Ephesians 1.15. Paul wrote about this phenomenon. Ephesians 1.15. Ephesians 1, verse 15. <clears throat> For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, Already, your brain should be about ready to pop. Wait a minute, let me read that again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of Him. Furthermore, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. And any time here in the New Testament... Um, when that word called, when Paul writes the word or uses the word called, he's talking about elect only. It means only the elect have their eyes opened. What is the hope to which he has called you, the elect? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And we'll stop there. Whew! You almost have to be prepared to read Ephesians. Like, there has to be a lot of space in your head. <laughs> because every time I read Ephesians, it's an overflow. It almost immediately just overflows. It's so huge up here on the board. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, it is difficult to get our arms around this. By the grace of God, he blesses us with spiritual sight which changes us profoundly. We get to see Him while alive on earth, and we love Him in response. Again, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. It is difficult to get our arms around this. By the grace of God, He blesses us with spiritual sight, which changes us profoundly. We get to see Him while alive on earth, and we love Him in response. 1 John 4.19. This is a mind blow. I don't know how you can read Ephesians and not have your mind blown, truly. We've done absolutely nothing to earn or deserve such a blessing, and yet here we are this morning even, basking in God-given abilities that billions of others alive at this very moment have zero access to. Do you, know how, do you know how blessed you are right now? The fact that he's opened your mind up to Scripture, the fact that you can see him in Scripture, the fact that you're able to connect the dots in your life is a blessing that you cannot put bounds on. So here's Paul's attitude. Remember this? Philippians 3.8. In light of all that, what, is, what, do you, what do you do except this? Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Take everything else. Remember the, the parable of the, the pearl in the field? Sell everything else. Sell everything you got to get this thing. What does it matter? What else is more important than this? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. The surpassing worth. How valuable is it to know Christ? Nothing compares to knowing Christ. Nothing. Go to Ephesians 3.14. Ephesians 3.14. You are blessed on that very fact alone. 
Not everyone knows Christ, even those who say they do. Jesus talked about that, right? I never knew you. Some of you who do do like active, you know, almost formal evangelizing will hear it all the time. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you? Well, what do you think about him? As soon as the conversation starts, within 30 seconds, you realize they don't know anything about Jesus Christ. They just know that he was some guy in history. And someone lied to them about some quick prayer so that they could be, get a ticket to heaven. They don't know Jesus Christ. They, haven't even, they, they don't know anything about Jesus Christ. They just know what they were told from some awful religion, maybe. And they purchased a lie. But it was easy, and so they're not off the hook because they're the lazy ones, right? Nothing, no, nothing compares to knowing Christ. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled, is a Greek word, pleuroo, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I got, a little, I got a little emoji on my iPhone that's like a picture of me and my head's blown off. It's like a big mushroom cloud. That's what it's like. Does anybody care? Just for that, I'm going to send a group text to all of you. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Remember, pleuroo means to have your sails filled. If you were a boat on the open sea and you didn't know what to do, and all of a sudden your sails are filled and the wind is blowing and carrying you in a direction. It means that the power, the dunamis from Romans 1.16, the power of God is the cause of your movement, your thoughts, your actions, your living in that moment. That's what it means. Your, your, your sails are filled with the truth. And because you can even comprehend it, because you're saved and you have the apparatus, you're moved, you're sanctified. What a blessing. That doesn't happen for an unbeliever, even ones who proclaim to be Christians. It doesn't matter what you proclaim. It matters what the Spirit does in you. The result is akin to what I just read from an email. Incredible, boundless, indescribable peace and joy. To have your sails filled with the power of God. Incredible, boundless, indescribable peace and joy. If that rarely happens to you. All I can tell you is that you are still wallowing in arrogance. Something that arrogance comes in bratty form, like self-pity, food for thought. Or sometimes that arrogance comes in bratty form, like self-pity. Again, if this really happens to you, this joy, say that joy that I read from that email. If that's like hardly ever you, you have fleeting moments only and it's just your life is just riddled with misery and malcontent. All I can tell you is that you are still wallowing somehow. I don't ask me how. Somehow arrogance still has grips on you. And just food for thought. Sometimes that arrogance comes in a bratty form, like self-pity. Self-pity, that might be one that a lot of you have to think about. Woe is me. Woe is me. You're just being a brat. What do you mean, woe is you? Jesus Christ had you personally in mind when he died on the cross. What do you mean, woe is you? So again, don't ask me to pick out which human flavor of arrogance it is, because there are as many of those as there are humans on this planet. Arrogance is something that only you and the Spirit can discern in your soul which is why we read our Bibles, pray, and ask for wisdom. It just can't be with dipsukos. It can't be with uh, double-mindedness. 
If you're willing, or unwilling, excuse me, if you're unwilling to heed the Spirit's good counsel, then why would you ever expect to be blessed? Up here on the board. James 1, 7 to 8. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded, dipsukos man, unstable in all his ways. So just to come full circle on this, consider our previous point from Ephesians 1, 18, up here on the board. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, it is difficult to get your arms around this. By the grace of God, he blesses us with spiritual sight, which changes us profoundly. We get to see him while alive on earth, and we love him in response. It's incredible. What an incredible privilege. What a blessing it is to know him. And as Paul said, what else is there? Everything else is garbage. It's just about him. And here's the linkage back to our message this past week up here on the board. So all of that was to get us back to here. So take all of that thinking that the Spirit just developed in our souls and take it back to where we were this past week. What good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? What good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? It seems completely odd that mankind gathers up riches for himself on earth, but not in heaven. That's a certain kind of blindness, isn't it? Something's, something's awry. Something's wrong when that is the modus operandi, if you would, of your life. When all you think about is gathering up riches for yourself on earth, but not in heaven. We believers have 24 by 7 access to the riches of heaven. As I mentioned in this last week's blog, titled The Three Pillars in Satan's Unholy Economy, that that blog really got us situated to thinking about the trappings in this world. The trappings in this world. In other words, what is going to take us away from purchasing that which our Lord said and advised us to purchase, which is really the truth. Where are we investing our time and our energy and often our money, but it's really not about money, as we're going to see here in a moment. It has nothing to do, really, about money. Money is just a, um, uh, like a litmus test. It's just something we can look at and examine and say, okay, here's something practical before me, and I can do this or that with it, or I can view it this way or that way. That's all money is. It's just a representation of a, of a, of a root situation. That's it. That's it. So the three pillars of Satan's economy gets us situated to think about the trappings in this world. One word to describe such trappings is counterfeits. Counterfeits. You know, like it was what? Idolatry, money, and, and sexual immorality, right? They're all counterfeits. Idolatry, the big one, is a counterfeit for God. I want a little God instead of the God, etc. So one word describes these trappings, counterfeits, also known as the things we purchase instead of truth that does set us free. We purchase counterfeits when we are deceived, up here on the board, deceit. Galatians 5.9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Oh, wait a minute. You mean I can be a little deceived and have a little counterfeit and it has a a, a real terrible effect? Yes. Counterfeits are most effective when they look the most authentic. Satan uses counterfeits to deceive us, mixing the truth with lies. But remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You, need, you don't need a complete lie that you go, oh my word, that's a joke. Couldn't the kingdom of darkness do better than that? No, that's not how it works. It infiltrates. Sort of like, you know, and it's patient. Remember all that work on the deceitfulness of sin. But what the Spirit's getting at this morning is the fruit of counterfeit or counterfeiting always results in misery. That's what it bears. That's the kind of fruit 
that counterfeits bear in our souls. Misery. Look around you. People abiding in Satan's economy are exhausted, malcontent, and miserable. They're just a facade. They're all saying the same thing. But in that economy, they're exhausted, malcontent, and miserable. This is the essence of what Jesus was saying up here on the board. I brought this up on Wednesday, I think. Matthew 6, 19-20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The key, here it is, you ready? The key to unlocking Jesus' radical words in this passage is to understand two things. Is someone in the parking lot over there? Can you guys hear that? Is it over here? Can, if someone's over here, tell them to get lost. Is someone there? No? Can you guys hear that? Everybody's doing this. Literally, Scott's saying it's over here. It sounds like it's over there. Anyways, it makes sense because of what I'm teaching. Okay? The verse or the passage on the board, I think it's one of the most misunderstood passages in Holy Scripture. People play all kinds of tricks with it. The worst, arguably, is the religious one. So we're going to talk about this here because I want your eyes and ears to be open to the truth. The key to unlocking Jesus' radical words in this passage is to understand two things. When we do, we are released from the bondage of the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. First, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves. Now, for yourselves implies that you are the primary beneficiary. In other words, your glory is amplified. Do not lay up for yourselves, you know, to your glory as opposed to Christ. Secondly, Jesus uses the phrase, treasures on earth. And on this, it's best to get the fuller context, which is the counterstatement against the counterfeit mistake. But lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In context, we have a comparison that qualifies the first principle we just noted for yourselves. I'll give you two examples to help you work this out in your soul because I know for a fact, I know for a fact that some of you still struggle with this one fundamental phrase, this passage even. Some of you feel shame. Is that fair to say? What, none of you feel shame? Oh, come on. You're all a bunch of just unbelievable, perfect saints. Right? Nobody feels any shame when you read this. Okay. But here's what I'm saying. Some of you feel shame, but it may be unwarranted. Some of you feel no shame, but should. Some feel shame and shouldn't. Some feel no shame, but should. First, the lopsided case. Let's call this the ultra-ascetic. Because you could take this all the way to the bank, right? You could go crazy with this and live in a cave. Right? Anybody here live in a cave? You should all be ashamed. I just got wicked religious on you. Why don't you live in a cave? Jesus Christ didn't have a place to lay his head. What's your problem? Fox have holes. Birds have nests. Jesus Christ, I don't believe, I don't play. How are you going to follow me? Why are you not all living in caves? Why, don't you have, why are you not all homeless? Oh, you mean there are balanced statements in the Word of God? You mean religion is always lopsided? Yes. So lopsided, so 
One extreme case is what I'll call the ultra-ascetic. Suppose our main character is an investment banker, and he uses his God-given intellect to earn him a lot of money. God gave him a brain. He's an investment banker. He makes a lot of money. Could be a woman as well, so I'll start using there. Okay? Suppose our main character is a private banker, investment banker, using their God-given intellect, earns them a lot of money. But since they've been lied to about Matthew 16, or excuse me, 6, 19 to 20, by some religious do-gooders, they give all their money away and are homeless, starving, and sickly, and eventually die a painful death. When the nurses who have tended to this person over the years see this person die, they say, boy, God's obviously not one to keep his promises. We know that he is a Christian. That's not glorifying God. That's showing the rest of the world that God isn't good and can't even take care of his own children. Aren't there some passages on that? If he takes care of the birds, can he not take care of you? What if you're an ultra-ascetic and you die because you've been lied to by religious fools? So that's one extreme that we can learn a lot from. Now, let's suppose before they died, they dropped the lie that led them to the brink of physical death. And they finally figured out what Jesus was really saying in Matthew 6, 19 to 20. Let's say this person learned that having money in a bank even isn't evil at all. In fact, because this person's heart was right before God, let me say it again, in fact, because this person's heart was right before God, not deriving any self-worth from the size of their bank account, they now abide in Jesus' command, do not lay up for yourselves. From this person's perspective, nothing is for themselves, especially not any savings they have put aside. God sees this person's heart and is pleased. And yet, he wasn't pleased with the version of this person that died on a hospital gurney. By human and religious standards, which are we apt to glorify, though? The ascetic or the one living comfortably? Just on human religious standards alone, which one are we more apt to glorify? The ascetic or the one living comfortably? Is human viewpoint consistent with God's viewpoint? Nope. The point the Spirit's making here is one of the great subtle trappings peddled by Satan himself, and it's called religion. Some would argue it's the greatest trap of all. Religion. The ascetic in this example was religious, self-righteous, and did more damage to Christ's good name than maybe they ever even imagined. Maybe they ever even imagined. It's the person whose heart is right before God, living comfortably because God ordained it, that brings glory to God. I'm not saying everybody needs to live comfortably, so don't make that a doctrine either. I'm going to get to that in a moment. I hope you see what the Spirit's trying to do. Trying to separate you from the um, temptation to become religious. And then, what, what did we start off with in Proverbs this morning? Do not look to your left and do not look to your right. Because what happens, every religious jackass, that's the first thing they do. Well, I'm living like Jesus. I'm going to look to my left and then I'm going to look to my right and I'm going to start casting judgment in every which way even though I have no idea what that person's heart looks like before God. I have no idea what God's plans are for whatever it is they do with whatever resources they've been given in this world. I have no idea because I'm not God. 
but as the very first thing a religious jackass does every single time. Do you understand? And what the Spirit's trying to do is separate you from that temptation. Go to 1 John 3.21. 1 John 3.21. Some of you are like, great, I don't have to contribute to that $1,000 debt. What's the matter? That wasn't funny? That's pretty funny to me. See, that's what people do, right? Like, yeah, hoorah! Yeah, free pass. I think you might be missing the point. <laughs> First John 3.21 Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Do you see that? When should you have confidence before God? When your heart does not condemn you. That's the key to understanding Matthew 6.19-20. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. These are hard issues, my friends. You don't read the passage on the board and look to your left and to your right. You look within yourself and say, what does God have planned for me? What does God want me to do with whatever resources? Remember, we always focus on money because we're idiots. But what about our time? If you ask any rich person at the end of the day, what do they want more of, more money or more time? What about our time? What are we doing with our time? If you were to get down on your knees this very day and pray to God that your business, if you run one, let's say, has a good year so that you could save up a little money and you don't even know exactly how this money will be used eventually, but since you aren't laying it up to your own glory, God may just grant you this wish. And then, just to carry the story to conclusion, let's say five years later the church needs a new roof and you're the only one with $10,000 to plop down on it. And suppose it's this church. Do you like what's going on here today? Some of you are like, I did until the money thing came up. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. This place is beautiful. It's a total grace blessing from God. Do you know how much money people spent on this thing? I know people that went almost broke, gave up their retirement to build this church. Were they evil because they had a retirement? Were they? No. No! That's the whole point. Buildings like this just don't grow out of the ground. You don't plant a, a building seed like a flower and it grows up. A lot of hard work, a lot of money was spent just to build this place so you could be here smiling this morning, eating cupcakes and quiche, whatever's back there. Right? Everybody loves it, but then everybody throws it around and goes, I don't know, I'll just, you know. How does this stuff happen? Magically? How do we send, how do we send Scott Grande and Michael Pavia overseas, or Joey and I? $10,000 a pop. How's that happen? Honest to goodness. How's that happen? You get the point, right? You get the point. Some people, I have, some, some people can honestly say without any shame, I don't know how it happens because I've never contributed. You, saw, you see what I'm saying? And that's not a dig against them at all. God says, no, I want you to do day-to-day -day things over here. I got other people that are saving up over here for when it's time for big ticket items, they can plop down. Both people, that neither one is storing up treasure for themselves. Is that fair to say? There you go. So suppose this church is in view now. Knowing what you know about the gospel that comes from this pulpit, what say you about God's divine plan for treasures in heaven? Again, arguably among the greatest trappings of all for we Christians is religion and religious thinking. God sees the heart, which is why I've always tried to be super. I hope you appreciate it. It's really hard. I try to loosen you up. Uh, there's some hard points to teach when you talk. Anytime money comes up, people go like this. Or, 
right? I really try hard to be super cautious about how I teach this particular principle, either here or out there. Why? Because I never want to turn someone miserable because they are ashamed that they aren't like the ascetic that dies on an operating table killed by their own religious folly. Money is just one example that you all need to ponder, especially since, as Americans, you have a lot of it. You have a lot of it. Some of you are hearing my voice may actually fall into the obvious camp, saving up treasures on earth to your personal glory. Some of you, we all do that to some degree, I suppose. Some more than others. Maybe that's, the tr maybe that's true about you. That's a certainly a possibility as well. But here's the key point, okay? And it's going to get back to where we were. The point is to divorce any religious-type thinking and focus on your heart on the matter. Divorce any religious temptations from your heart on the matter. It's really easy to read that particular passage and become really religious very quickly. Always, always, doesn't matter which side you turn on, the ascetic side or the other one, whatever side you turn to, if it's not God's, if it's not holy, if it's you suffer. The idea here is to divorce any religious type thinking and focus on your heart on the matter. Where is your heart on the matter? Today you might have to do this. Tomorrow you might have to do that. Ten years from now you're doing something completely different. Is everyone right if you're, if you're aligned with God? Yeah. One day you're spent, one day you're saved, the next day you're spent, the next day you're saved. As long as you're convinced in your heart that you're doing the right thing, all glory and honor be to Him and Him alone. You're good. Do you understand that? You're good. Do not listen to any religious jackasses, even if they're in this ministry, tell you differently. This is about your heart before God. Now get that $1,000 in. I'm kidding. Seriously, this is what I do. Right? Everybody's like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Divorce it. Don't allow religion to become a cancer in you. If it does, your confidence in the Lord suffers. Why? Why? Because you can't reconcile what the Word promises regarding peace with your current existence. Let me say it again. Don't allow religion to become a cancer in you. If it does, your confidence in the Lord suffers. Why? Because you can't reconcile what the Word promises regarding peace with your current existence. Again, up here on the board. This is all it takes, my friends. A little deceit. A little deceit. I've got to pick a spot to close here. Galatians 5.9 a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Counterfeits are most effective when they look the most authentic. Satan uses counterfeits to deceive us, mixing the truth with lies. An example counterfeit, as we just noted, is asceticism, based on this passage. That's a counterfeit. We're not supposed to become ascetics. We're not supposed to die on hospital gurneys. So we need to press on, and I hope your encouragement is coming from relief from all directions, including the one I just described. I hope your encouragement is coming from relief from all directions. Like I said, some of you are um, ashamed and you shouldn't be. Some of you aren't ashamed and should be. At the end of the day, what's the great litmus test up here on the board? And then I've got a I think I might close here. Yeah, I think I'm going to close here. The great litmus test is what you're doing bringing glory to God. Who can answer that question? Can I answer that question for you? Never. May it never be. And if I try, tell me to go pound salt. Seriously. That is not my business. I have to teach you the truth, and I give you examples, and some of you make that 
horrible mistake. Oh, he's talking about me. No, I'm not. Stop being so self-absorbed. I'm not talking about you. Well, we just talked about this. So? How do you know I didn't talk to three other people about the same thing? Stop being so... so don't mix those two. I don't, want, I don't want to judge you because it causes me misery. Whenever it happens in my own soul, it does. I'm fleshly, right? It happens sometimes. I'm like, dude, stop. What are you doing? That's their, what are you doing? You're making yourself miserable. It's not my business to judge you. But you can judge rightly yourself. Is what you're doing bringing glory to God? That's the big question. That's the hard issue, right? Only you can answer that. Is what you're planning for bringing glory to God? Some of you have plans that are gross, that do not include God and have nothing to do with bringing glory to God. They're only plans to bring glory to you or to satisfy some lust of the flesh or some one of the pillars of Satan's economy or something that the Spirit's been bringing to the forefront as of late. Those are your plans. You know what the great thing about plans is? They're still future and they can be what? Changed. So for some of you, you need to stop. Whatever that little disgusting plan you're putting together in your life, that unholy one, the one you're trying to justify with all doing good on the outside and the fringes and all that kind of thing, you need to stop it, like now. Again, is what you're doing bringing glory to God? Is what you're planning for bringing glory to God? Are you storing up for yourself treasure on earth or in heaven? And whose glory do you seek? I only, I'll close with this, I only ask these questions because I don't want you to be miserable anymore. I just don't want you to be miserable anymore. I want you to be like that person whose email I read. I want you to get up and say, God is good. Life is good. I don't want you to be miserable anymore. I want you to understand God's grace. I want you to understand God's grace. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege to learn your word and to be encouraged by it. Thank you for revealing to us the nature of your grace, which is motivated by your love. May we never forget these simple truths about your character. Father, we're so blessed just to receive the truth, for it is that which sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then out to a world that's in desperate need of it. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.